Um, anything we need to set up before we do a little intro? Uh, I think I'm probably confused about Rebellion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, uh-oh. That's fair. Yeah, there's a lot going on. Homura was the threat, but not a witch, a demon. Well, she was a witch until the very end. Yeah, and she knew that Madoka was going to come rescue her, and she corrupted Madoka or took her power or something. Yeah, sort of, I think. She kind of overrode her power in a lot of ways. Yeah, I kind of view them as like two equal but opposite kind of powers here. But at the end of the series, you have this kind of benevolent god sort of in Maroka. And then you have the demon. The malevolent um, kind of god. selfish. Yeah, the malevolent god in Homura. Yeah, the demiurge. And then they go back to high school. I mean, when I look at this movie, I'm always looking at it as like, Madoka representing like selfish, selfless love and Homura representing selfish love. Okay. And in the end, the, those two things, they can't actually be equal. Like Homura's selfish mm. love, I think kind of does outweigh Madoka's selfless love. You know, when you are loving selfishly, you are able to do more, push beyond, uh, force your will onto those who are loving selflessly. And I think that's why Homura at the end of the movie, you know, they're they're she says that they're gonna be enemies, that they could be enemies. And she ultimately does have more power than Madoka has, mm. is at least my my personal view of it. But I think you could probably argue a number of different things. Mm-hmm. Well, it was very interesting. Had you not seen it before, Blix? I no, thought you were a big Madoka fan. I, I am, but I didn't even know about the movie until recently. <gasps> oh, well, then I'm very curious to hear what you think, because I feel like there's very much like a love-hate divide. Oh, like, yeah. Half the world loves, like, Madoka fans love the movie and half, like, yeah. really hate it. Well, I, I loved it, but I could see why people would be upset. Mm-hmm. Well, welcome everyone to Pen Pen Pals. Uh, we're doing an episode today on Madoka Magica, or the movie Three Rebellion. I'm Alex. Hi, this is Plexa. Hey, this is Ben. Uh, and we have a returning guest come to give her unbridled thoughts about the series and the movie. Uh, please welcome back Marley. So happy to be back with you guys. This is, I had so much fun the first time and was really honored to be asked to come back. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, we were, we, we really enjoyed having you on and we're really excited to have you back because obviously this show has a lot of twists and turns and you don't mm-hmm. get to talk about them when you come on for only the first two episodes. <laughs> the third episode's really the big kind of point. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what? It, it, let's check in with you real quick. Anything big in your life happening? Any new anime? Any? You gave your talk at uh, FanimeCon, uh, which is now available. Maybe I could link to it in the show description of this episode. Uh, you could. Yes, okay. that was that was something. Uh, it wasn't like on YouTube or anything, but yes, um, I do have a videotaping that a friend made of it um, and that I would be happy to have you link. We did have some technical difficulties. I'm not great with technology, but- <laughs> More with magic. people seem <laughs> on board nonetheless. They, 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 they bared with me very kindly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a lot of fun. In other, I don't know, anime news, I've uh, the spring season of anime that have been airing um, are pretty much all wrapping up. They all have been having their final episodes either last week or this week. So I was watching quite a number of series um, from the spring season. 
mm-hmm. uh, with with a number of winners. So, yeah. what's what's what would be a standout for you? Uh, my two favorites are Skip Todofer, which I, th- I think's had a fair bit of popularity. It's kind of a very sweet rom-com um, in the vein of like Kimi Todoke for those who are fans of that series where just everyone, are, they're all sweet cinnamon rolls and you just kind of want the best for them. And it's just <laughs> lovely and fun and happy to watch. And the main character is this overachiever whom I relate to desperately. But the other one that I really love that has not beginning to love it needs is called uh, Watashi no Yuri wa Oshigoto desu. Which means like the like, Yuri is my job, I think is how they've been translated. Oh, oh, okay. I'm listening. Oh my gosh, it is so fun. It's the main character is this like gremlin princess of a person who she she knows she's cute and she's gonna use that to her fullest advantage. Mm. And she ends up having to work at this cafe that um is playing with traditional class S themes. So a lot of traditional very like Yuri themes. So in some ways it's a little bit like Oran Host Club, but for like lesbians. Oh, and sorry, what's what's that term Yuri? Yuri means like a girl's love or lesbian okay. anime. And then you said class S? Uh, Yeah, the class S genre of Japanese literature was a a genre of literature that was prominent in like the 1910s, 1920s, and was essentially like the closest we could get to having actual lesbian representation um, for a long time. These were stories of schoolgirls who were like as close as close can be, like they are devoted to each other, but you know platonically mm. oh right. gal pals yeah exactly right. and, and is that like the word class and then the letter s or yes. the word okay. class and then the letter s and that genre was really popular for quite a while because it was viewed as kind of a, a rite of passage or even like a healthy stage of development that girls would go through that they would kind of be like gay until graduation mm. and then they would graduate and you know, having been so close to their female classmates because we don't want to think that our our women that we might be marrying you know could possibly have had relations with other men no, no. Mm-hmm. they were close to their female classmates and then they they graduate and suddenly now they are straight and that was that was seen as a as as a good thing for quite a while although in 19 oof i want to say 1936 maybe the mid 1930s uh, the Japanese government did ban these stories as uh, promoting oh. homosexuality. But in any case, this is my very long way of saying that um, a lot of the tropes that we associate today with lesbian Japanese media and certainly lesbian anime mm-hmm. uh, come out of these kinds of stories. Mm. And the show, Yuri is My Job, which is a lot of fun and everyone should watch is very much playing around with those tropes oh. in a fun kind of deconstructive way. Okay. Right. And a lot of that connects to what we're talking about today. Like, you know, we have these uh, very close schoolgirl female relationships and, you know, n- none of them are explicitly romantic, but they all kind of, especially Sayaka and Kyoko and mm. Homura and Madoka kind of border on that. I was going to say, I feel like in this movie, they went like a step further than they did in the show of, of kind of making them seem a little more romantic. We got the handhold moment between Kyoko and Sayaka. And... Yes. It's very sweet, that moment. Yeah. Structurally, very interesting film, uh, uh, the way people get paired off and uh, uh, dealt with. I really love my favorite part of it was that Bebe and uh, uh, Sayaka were agents of Madoka and they were both there like on Madoka's behalf, but also specifically to keep 
uh, Mommy and Kyoko occupied while the whole plan like ran its course. It was, it was just fantastic. So I, I was wondering before we kind of comb through and, and talk about the big moments, uh, what what was everybody's impression? What your overall, did you enjoy the film? Let's start with Ben, if you're ready. Uh, so so I just finished watching it like, you know, 10 minutes ago or 20 minutes ago. <laughs> nice. So it's all very fresh. Um, you know, so they're, they're sort of like the false start at the beginning. And the first 30 minutes or so, I was sort of like, what are we doing? Like, why, why am I watching this? And and then, you know, once we got to kind of like the, the mystery, then I was on board. But I was a little bit like, it felt very fan service-y in the beginning and, and maybe just as not like a like uber fan um i didn't appreciate it or there's mm-hmm. maybe some stuff too that felt like it would be sort of like spectacle to see it on the big screen yes and so maybe it would work better in in theaters than you know watching it uh streaming and then I, you know i was interested in on board but i did think that it like tried to do a lot and I, I don't think it hit like sort of the emotional thing that i got at the end of the series like i just I found I didn't like connect as much as I did in this series, I guess. Yeah, sure. Tough customer. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. And what about you, Blix? If this was your first time watching it, you yeah. watched what uh what did you think of it? I loved it. Uh I thought it was fantastic. So I will say that my perspective is probably severely skewed. Why so? I just came off of a 10-day road trip visiting a bunch of my trans friends across the country. The destination was Pride in Minneapolis. I don't know if the listeners care about this. Like, I grew up pretty sheltered, mm-hmm. so like I'm catching up on a lot of like queer 101. And uh, I was very intimately uh, living with a whole wide spectrum of people these past 10 days. Uh, sharing beds with them, really, to be <laughs> honest. So... Watching the movie, I was immediately impressed by like the production value. What, one of the things that struck me about the original series was the, you know, the very flat two-dimensional stuff in the witch realm and our classic animation. And then this sort of took the juxtaposition a bit further. You had like 3D-looking objects instead of like 2D paper cutouts, mm-hmm. which was strange because in some ways that's like more real, whereas like the 2D stuff was like less real than our animated characters. And that was wild. And I didn't know if that was just a stylistic thing or if that's supposed to mean something because like, felt like what is real was a question I was asking myself a lot, you know, in the series and in this, this movie. Yes, Ben, I did notice it did feel more fan servicey, and this is where I'm going to admit my own bias. So I'm a big raging lesbian, and I love all that shit. But um, having just come off this unique experience, um, I was looking at all these characters and thinking, look, well, what if they were like femboys? Would we still have the same response to them? Or would we be like celebrating their like flamboyant, free sexual liberation? I don't know. I don't really have any strong opinions about that one way or another. I'm just trying to enjoy it. Yeah. And maybe I just stopped noticing it, but I feel like it was sort of confined to that first third or quarter of the movie or whatever. And, yeah. and, it, and I mean, some of it was that sort of, yeah, like the sexualized fan service, but it was also just sort of like these like moments. I don't know, like, like they're like, oh, it's like this character now and like this character and like. Yeah, like it just felt like they were like doing the doing the things and having the scenes for the, the yeah. audience kind of. 
Well, again, like I know that my perspective is not going to be common, but like the, the the sexy poses and stuff, I didn't find it like sexually enticing. I thought it was fabulous. Mm-hmm. But I, under, I understand like the age of the characters being an issue. Yeah. But there was this strange, like, not just it being sexualized, there was this, I, and especially in that first third, there was the the nightmare scene where they all sing a song to Bebe. <laughs> yeah. Forever. Oh gosh, I thought it was adorable. Yeah, it's interesting to me to hear you guys label this first section as like fan servicey because because yes, I think there is something to be said when you're you know looking at it from the perspective of marketing mm-hmm. that you want to be able to kind of give the fans that's that stuff. But in terms of storyline. The fan service was all for Homura's sake. This was the world mm. she built. This mm. was the world that she desired. And in her created universe, they're playing together in this very kind of quintessential mm. magical girl way. You know, we've mm-hmm. got we have we have the five girls, and like five is kind of like the magical number, I feel like, for magical. Yeah. Um, yeah, certainly we get that with Sailor Moon, but Sailor Moon in itself was influenced to have like five as its kind of main team from a lot of um oh golly what are they called a uh, tokusatsu series things like mm. us sentai which mm-hmm. you know, says power rangers mm-hmm. um you know and sailor moon was high hugely influenced by that and the set of five as kind of like the five mm. heroes has long been a staple of these types of japanese media and i think that homura is very much her you know subconscious that is creating this labyrinth has pulled this in and wants to show it off here's our set of five we've got our name it's the holy quintet and we've got our poses and our lengthy transformation sequences much longer than what we had in the series and we're gonna play our games and sing our songs and I think I think you're right that it is for the sake of the fans but Mm -hmm. to me I'm reading it in universe as being entirely for Homer's sake it's what she built yeah. So I would, I would, has, again, this is just me. I would hesitate to call it fan service just on the basis of it not removing me from the story. It oh. had the opposite effect for me. Like when all this stuff started up, I was like, oh, we're going for it. Like we're doing magical girl shit. I'm with you, Blixa. <laughs> yeah. Like specifically, it felt like much more strongly like Sailor Moon coded or, or whatever. Maybe it was just like the length and the detail of like transformation stuff. Uh, like there was a, a shot of the moon that was kind of like the classic Usagi moon, you know, it's just like we're we're going all in and it really excited me. Hmm. Yeah, well, that you say it's like for Homura is very interesting because we had a guest who said who characterized Homura as a magical girl fan, as someone who watched <laughs> it over and over and over yeah. And when given the chance to inhabit that world was like, no, I'm going to make it work out happy this time, you know, through sheer force of will. And so for it to be Homer's world, that makes complete sense that everything is a performance for her. Like it, in my uh, outline here, I have somewhere like, they're all performing, but who are they performing well, it's for? It's highly performative. From the mm-hmm. I mean, the very first images of the movie are these kind of dancing figures, right? There's a lot of, and I have to admit, 
So I know that like the pamphlets and stuff that were given out at like the theatrical releases of the movie in Japan had a lot of information on like oh. the the witches oh. stuff that occupy the movie. That's awesome. Like like stuff hmm. that so now is part of the lore without actually having really been in the movie. Um, so you know you can take it or leave it. But I know that a lot of the naming conventions of some of the kind of witch creatures, nightmare creatures of the movie follow um, the the Nutcracker ballet hmm. um, yeah. as the Nutcracker witch and her like little minions are called like the Clara dolls. Clara was the main character of the Nutcracker. And that was a motif that carried through the whole film. Yeah. So it's it's interesting because on the one hand, I definitely believe like if it's not in the movie, if I have to like learn it from like some pamphlet you gave me at the theater I, I don't know how much it counts, yeah. <laughs> but but it's an interesting piece of kind of additional lore. Absolutely. So so just like a clarifying question. So at the beginning of the movie, when we're seeing Homura, so is is it sort of like in Homura's witch dream or witch wish or something? Like yeah. she's kind of wiped her own memory so she can experience this without knowing it. Same question, because the ending changes how we see the beginning now, right? Yeah, so it's unclear, I think, whether Homura does it to herself through her massive powers or whether the Kyubei do it to her. Because the Kyubei set up the isolation field, which allows Homura to have a little pocket universe all of her own. And it's unclear, I felt, whether they wiped her memory or whether her, you know, filling the space of the pocket dimension is what reset her own understanding. Hmm. Now, I've been looking into uh, Gnosticism a lot, um, and something about Homura's journey uh, speaks to that connection to me. Like, so so one of the basic tenets of this uh, uh, Gnostic belief is, uh, which is Gnostic Christianity, which can mean a whole lot of things, but specifically we're talking about things that were learned in like the, um, God, Judas's thing. What do you call that? The go- Gospel of Judas. Okay, the Gospel of Judas, Okay. Mm-hmm. And so in this, it talks about a greater cosmology of the universe in which there is an all an omnipotent creator God, uh, which is the universe. That's kind of like the uh, uh, Brahman, I think, in uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Hindu. But um, below that, one of the aspects of it is Sophie, which is this kind of goddess of wisdom and uh, compassion. And Sophie wants to create an offspring. So she creates this other God, uh, this lower God called uh, the Demiurge, which translates to like creator Mm. or architect. And that God is the God of our world, of the material world. Oh, wow. I see where you're going. Yeah. So when it creates our material world, it convinces itself that it is the only God, that there's nothing above it, and that it is the omnipotent presence uh, the, you know, the high God uh, uh, actually is. But because it's inhabiting the material world, we actually have access to it. And so Homura in her little bubble, it's essentially like our world, the material world, and that Homura is this God, but has also kind of Jesusified herself. Okay. Like she's controlling the the universe within the bubble, but she also gets to experience it as this corporeal form where she gets to enjoy all the physicality and enjoy the surprise of not knowing what's coming next. I I am hanging on by my fingertips. Marley, does this framework, does it resonate with you? Well, yes. 
I, I, I have so many different feelings here. <laughs> I have so many different feelings. Well, one is that it's so interesting to hear you talk about Homura Jesusifying herself when it's Madoka who receives all the Jesus imagery. Yes. But, but before even that, I think about there are so many Magical Girl series that I feel like employ this kind of architect trope. Mm. Um, you know, I think about Princess Tutu, for example, um, and Drosselmeyer, and that is very much kind of the creator of the story. Uh, I think about Shoja Kakume Utena, my, my eternal go-to, which I have a lot mm. of feelings about its relationship to this movie. <laughs> um, and, you know, the ways in which kind of uh, like Dios and End of the World are the creator of that universe. And mm. the series is about kind of breaking out of that universe. Um, so I feel like there is something very interesting in thinking of how our magical girls become their own gods and how they break beyond kind of what has been expected of them by society and what they've been told to do. I don't know. That's a really interesting idea to me. I hadn't mm. thought of it through that exact lens before, and it's fascinating. Yeah. And just one clarifier. So in this cosmology, Madoka would be kind of Sophie, that that or uh, uh, that goddess of wisdom and compassion, and would be essentially the creator of Homura, not directly as in this case, but like it is Homura's proximity to Madoka that puts her into this situation and gives her all of these powers. Um, and yes, Madoka in this is very similar to the Jesus allegory in Christianity and especially Gnostic Christianity, because She's simultaneously, she still is the law of cycles existing in the larger universe, yes. but there is a little snapshot of her that's pinched off into this universe, which is unaware or unconnected to the whole, but is still obviously playing out this role of savior. That wonderful scene where there, she stands up on the chair, right? And puts her arms out and kind of the Jesus <gasps> cross pose and then mm -hmm. flat is yeah. gone. Oh, that was really good. That was like towards the end with uh, yeah, uh, Homer having this whole vision quest thing. Yeah, yeah. it was fun. All right. All right, we 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 hit the ground running at yeah. a breakneck speed. Um, I'm still trying to process this, and I think Ben might be as well. So we did do a speed run of the plot, mm -hmm. um, but what about the themes? What do you feel like the themes are, <laughs> Marley and Alex? I I mean, it may be a little obvious, but I think the biggest theme is cycles the inescapable dynamic of a cyclical nature. Like, you know, there are beginnings or endings, you can like point to them, but they're arbitrary. The movie starts off with these abstract shots of darkness and purple, which is Homura creating this universe. And then we're back at the beginning of the cycle. We're starting the series over. It's a regular magical girl anime this time. And so that that's the uh, that's the only one I can think of off the top of my head of of uh, themes, and that one is very strong in here. And again, like Madoka touched on it, uh, or it was a strong theme in Madoka, like the cycles that were happening and the dynamic of the media that comes before any particular piece of art, because it's so influenced by Sailor Moon and other shojo shows. But uh, in that, the way to overcome the cycle was to B 
become part of it, to write your own rules. Madoka changes the game and Homura does the same here. And we don't get to see the effects of Homura being like, I'm going to be the devil. I'm going to be the counterpoint. But it shows the game changing at the end there. And hopefully we will someday get a movie number four to see what that in dynamic. Theory, there's one coming. Yeah. Yeah. Did you find any themes in it? I mean, so I, I do go back to the idea of selfish love versus selfless love. Mm. Like I do feel that that's a major theme because we, a lot of the movie is about that tension about pitting kind of what Madoka's choice at the end of the series was against the choice that Homura ultimately makes. And in doing so strips Madoka of much of her own choice, which I think is where a lot of people got upset about the characterization mm. of Homura in the movie. To me, it made perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Um, like I was like, yes, this this is who Homura has always been. Yeah, I definitely feel that theme as well. But isn't there even sort of this interesting part where like if I understand it properly, um, Homura sort of like in the middle, Homura is trying to sort of just like end herself without Madoka saving her and then Madoka tries to save her anyway so it's sort of like this reversal where now Madoka isn't respecting Homura's agency of just like wanting to sort of like disappear into nothingness oh Hmm. no yeah that's absolutely true and maybe that's like you know agency is not an absolute thing it is a push and pull and just like Madoka is the first one to take away Homura's agency at the end of one of those cycles where she's hidden the grief seed Now, again, like Homura takes agency and says, I'm going to kill myself. And then Sayaka and uh, uh, the other magical girls kind of say, oh, not so fast. It's interesting, the idea of agency, because so much of the magical girl genre is about girls taking agency, right? Taking agency Mm -hmm. through their femininity and a lot of what made Madoka, you know, different, right? Um, And dark was that for much of the series, they kind of have that taken away from them. They are supposed to be powerful, right? They're supposed to be in charge of their own destinies by making these wishes. And then it's revealed that, of course, this is not the case. This is not what's happening. They are, in fact, being controlled by kind of Kyubei, um mm-hmm. and the entire cycle. Um, and Madoka at the end sort of sets that right with her wish and in becoming that kind of like god of sorts that she does at the end of the series. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting kind of the talk of agency and of kind of who takes agency from whom. I don't know. I find that very fascinating. And it's her, it does feel like maybe Humura is like the big loser out of everyone. I don't know. (laughs) Like she's the one that's sort of cursed with this knowledge of Madoka and this like desire for this person. I don't know. She's kind of like, did you see the end credit scene? Yeah. Yeah. Wait, was there was an end credit scene? Yeah, with the dancing, and she kind of falls sideways off the cliff. Oh, I missed that. Oh, no, it's so okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's Homura, and, like, Kyubei is all, like, jacked up in, like... Yeah, it's, like, frazzled in the ground. Seems like in the throes of death. <laughs> it was wild. Huh? It's this beautiful, very lonely dance that Homura yeah. had at the okay. end. Um, one of the chairs like she and Madoka had been in throughout the movie, kind of when they were chatting together in their little field, but it's just her and her one chair. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I have to admit, I'm still struggling and I'm worried that I might not have as much to 
contribute to our conversation. Since the word chair just came up, uh, Marley, <laughs> one thing that we like kept noticing but had no explanation for is like uh, there's all yeah. these empty chairs throughout the the series. I didn't notice them as much in the movie, but we were just like, why are there empty chairs everywhere? Yeah, like uh, in the classroom, there's a couple of empty desks and then Kiyosuke's his uh, uh, hospital room, there are always empty chairs. Like anywhere we went, there were always these empty chairs. And I feel like, I mean, there's so much in the series. This is me just spitballing. Mm -hmm. um, this is not something I had particularly noticed, I'll admit. But there's so much in the series about absence, right? Mm. About kind of what we create out of our loneliness and our desperation. You know, I look at in the movie, sort of the portion where everybody has the kind of like blurred out faces mm. um, because they're just, they're stand-ins. They're not really people. They're not what matters for Homura and her universe in the movie, right? We have the people who matter are our magical girls that she's kind of created this universe around. Mm -hmm. And I wonder throughout the series, if we're looking at kind of the ways in which we do make worlds in which only certain people matter and we build our own labyrinths in which kind of mm. we have a certain fixation and the rest sort of disappears into the background. Wow. I don't yeah. know. That's, that's the best I can do on the spot. Okay. <laughs> Good. Well, and, and maybe that speaks to that sort of the selfish love versus selfless love or something like that. Like the person that's experiencing that is Homura, this person that, you know, maybe really only cares about one person and then, yeah, kind of cares about these other magical girls, but that you can close yourself off from then the all these other people around you if you're not loving selflessly. Yeah. Well, like Homura wasn't, there's so many shades of gray. Like when she had mommy like dead to rights, she didn't kill her. Like she shot her in the leg. And well, I mean, shot the ribbon. Yeah. Monster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like, she still cared. Like it, it, if she was like the demon witch or whatever at that point, that doesn't make sense. I mean, mommy's a big part of her picture of the world, right? When yeah. we, in the beginning, when they're very much playing like perfect magical girl quintet, Mommy is the the center point. Mm -hmm. She she gets the lead role in that as kind of the leader of the group. Yeah. So she clearly features as an important player in the story that Homura wishes to create. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I, I feel like, well, Alex, maybe Blixa, or maybe all of you know this. I don't know this well, but I mean, there, so there is like Lucifer as this like fallen angel figure, right? Mm -hmm. And isn't there something like like it's actually his like love for humanity that causes him to be like exiled from heaven or some story like that's that? That's a Gnostic thing, yeah. Yeah, there's some there's some different motivations attributed to Lucifer. So one of them is uh, a compassion for humanity. One of them is also the opposite. It is a love for the divine that says you're going to create these humans. They're going to hurt you. I can't let you do that. Hmm. That feels homeroy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and so there's all of these, you know, tropey things. And especially because the basis of this, we come back to the origin. It's it's kind of a retelling of Faust, right? Or at least very uh, uh, influenced by Faust. Um, there are all these uh, phrases that come to mind, like better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. Because like Homura, when she at the end of the series, she's just an avenging angel. 
Uh, she's got a Cubay there to help her out and she just kills rates. That's her job. And now in this new environment, even though she didn't set it up, it is a trick by the Cubays. She is who's in charge. But to, to connect it back to this huge uh, uh, theme of the series, loneliness, being in a self-contained, you know, Skinner box world where everything is your whim, even if you don't completely realize it, is exceedingly lonely. It's going to completely lose its luster very quickly, at least I believe. And so we see that there are a handful of people that are not creations of Homera that have slipped in. We just uh, touched on this. Uh, there's the, the magical girls, right? The four of them are there. Plus there's also Hitomi and uh, Kiyosuke because they were a big part of the original story, but they're also something to focus on that isn't part of the magical girl quintet itself. And also Madoka's family is in there. At least I think they are the because they is. have the NPC face. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the teacher. Um, no. When you framed Homura as the avenging angel that suddenly changed the whole way I saw this story. Oh, how so? The series, I felt like I got these really interesting feminist messages out of it. But then when there was such hyper-focus on like the cycles in the movie, that's tricky because like we did Darling in the Franks and like the cycles were the natural order and mm. trying to break it is what caused problems. But then when I think about cycles in a negative sense, like say with patriarchy, breaking that cycle would be a great thing. Like in, in the spirit of like making your own rules, that's a very girl power thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the story we saw though, but if I compare this movie with the series, you know, there was such a happy, you know, like Madoka ascends and like, you know, it's this glorious thing, like all the other magical girls are restored, you know? And it's very bright and sunshiny. But then like with this, if Homer becomes like the avenging angel, like that's interesting to me from a feminist perspective, because like wrongs have been committed and like sometimes people have to face justice because like fuck patriarchy mm -hmm. uh, and fuck the people that are like the bootlickers of patriarchy. Maybe that's not like humanity's answer, but uh, it sure would be gratifying. Mm -hmm. Maybe like Homer is the other side of like <laughs> responding to this like patriarchy issue, like the exploitation of the, all these little girls, right? Like I said, I'm still processing this. <laughs> I mean, because the series has, and I, I I don't know if you guys have discussed this kind of in your podcasts throughout the talking about the series, but the series has so much kind of implication of like the, 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 the problems of, you know, capitalism, right? Cuba mm -hmm. is like the ultimate capitalist mm -hmm. um, using these magical girls only for what they can give him, which is this kind of like emotional energy mm -hmm. um, without actually respecting any of why they give it or who they are. Yeah, like capitalism's relationship to art. You know, like yeah. capital can't see art on an artist's or even a consumer's perspective because it can only see the production value, the profitability. Yeah. Okay. So this is the thing that's ethically gray for me. Like Cubay gets off really easy in the series. Like he doesn't have to like face any real consequences for the horrible bullshit that the mm -hmm. Cubay continuum or whatever did. Like they just get recoded and now they're a part of this nicer thing. And that just doesn't sit right. I mean, like maybe that's the right answer. Like maybe that's the right answer for humanity. Like 
if everything was just better, maybe we don't need to like punish people. But Cuba didn't Cuba didn't learn and grow. Cuba <laughs> just got a free pass. Did you like the scene in this where they kill all the Cubes? Fuck yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> and I really liked the end, like post credit, where Cubes all jacked up and. <laughs> well, maybe that's a statement that the show is trying to make because Madoka restructures the universe but keeps the Cube, keeps them in a similar position. They're not at the top anymore as they seem to be before. They're subservient to Madoka in a way, but she decides to keep the Cube. And Homura does the same thing, has this revelatory apocalyptic scene where she slaughters a bunch of their bodies, but at the end, ultimately decides to keep at least one of them around. Which if it's, if Cube is a personification of capitalism, well, that could be like, look, you have to let that go. You have to let these ideas of people becoming rich and people becoming, you know, pinnacles of humanity or something, you have to let that go and allow everybody there like to share their resources or else you're going to be trapped in the same cycle, no matter who's in charge, whether it be Madoka or Homura. Marley, what are your thoughts? (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny for all that he's like the instigator of the whole shebang. I spend very little time thinking about Cuba. (laughs) 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 Just not of interest to me personally yeah i think there's something to be said for you you have to keep around a villain Hmm. there's going to be a villain and the way to stop that villain from being you or somebody you love is to keep around an easier villain interesting so when i see kubei at the very end in that post credit scene um you know homura has accepted herself as kind of the demon of this universe and yet you know, it, it's good to, to keep around someone who's who's even worse, right? Um, and I don't think that's particularly like brilliant analysis so much as just my own <laughs> personal feelings. Right. But I mean, it, it, it may not be the best thing for humanity to keep it around, but it's useful for Homura because Homura has something to point to and go, no, I'm not the bad guy because nobody wants to be a villain in their own mind. It's very right. rare you find someone who's like, and no, I'm the bad guy. The movie is Homura shaping exactly what she wants mm-hmm. and saying, you know, this might not be what's good for humanity and it might not be what's good for anybody else, but this is the world that I'm going to have, God damn it. Mm-hmm. And there's there's power in that, right? There's power in seeing a young girl decide to ex- embrace kind of an evil in herself in order to have what she wants when we are kind of socialized and conditioned to be, you know, uh, martyring a little bit to be, you know, to give up who we are for the sake of our family, for the sake of our spouses, for whatever. Um, So there is a power in that, even if it's a dark power. Mm. So I know this is going to be a leap based on what we were just talking about, but listening to this conversation, I think I'm finally sold on the sapphic theme that, that Ben was voicing. I was resisting it the whole way through, but we end up with a couple that's kind of like the sapphic trope, like Homura's the goth girlfriend and Madoka's the kawaii girlfriend. <laughs> memed to infinity. And I think I kind of like it. <laughs> um, well, I was going to say one thing I did really like was this sort of like, you do think Kyube is going to be the villain? And then like, you think Kyube is the one running the simulation and in a way indirectly Kyube is, but you know, it's actually kind of Homura is the one that has created this weird situation. And and the Kyube inside that world maybe 
isn't even aware of what's going on, right? Yeah, that's an interesting twist. But one, one thing I never figured out, what's the deal with Bebe? Like, <laughs> and like, then <laughs> Bebe can turn into like a human porn. Yeah, we have to talk about girl. Bebe. Because Bebe is the, the, the human magical girl who became the witch who in the series killed Mommy, mm-hmm. right? Hmm. So we're getting to see in her human form, we're getting to see who she was in theory before she became that witch who killed Mommy. I, I know that um, like when they were first kind of thinking up storylines for the movie, um, there was a lot of talk of the fact that for whatever reason, and it is, it's true, when you look at like action figures or whatever of like the Madoka characters, Mom was always sold with that, with the that witch, the witch of sweet. Mm-hmm. I think she gets oh. Like it was always like a pairing, which always fe- seemed kind of perverse in a way yeah. that she was getting partnered with with the character who 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 killed her. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But because of that, it kind of linked them inextricably a little bit, I think, in people's minds. And so our our writer and director decided to kind of keep that connection point, but to give her, I guess, more humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, their names are a pun at this point, right? Mommy and baby. It's a good yeah. point. <laughs> like, it's solidified. I haven't even got that. Yeah, like, mommy... Through the whole series, I thought like it sounds like mom, you know, like yeah. she's yeah. the house mother, she's the the leader of all the girls. But I didn't want to make that connection because it's Japanese. I didn't think it had a crossover into English. But with Bebe there, it seemed kind of obvious, right? Yeah. So I, I do want to know what how Ben felt about Bebe because one of the criticisms is like Bebe is like the Mari of the uh, Madoka universe. Who, who's like, a lot Mari? of people didn't like Mari from Evangelion because she was. Mm shoehorned in through the movies yeah i mean you can imagine it being a cynical thing where they're like well we need another magical girl to like put on the post like we need something new to like sell this yeah. well did you like Bebe? i like the well and, and it's also a little bit like the talking dog kind of character <laughs> when she has jumped the shark or something i, I think i like <laughs> the two forms though right she has her talking dog character which is the weird speaking i love cheese like, yeah mm-hmm. i think i like that one more but then there's the human version <laughs> His name was what nagisa momoe maybe yeah um, i think that's right but a lot of people found her obnoxious yeah well okay so diegetically i really like her because homura's plot or the cube's plot it kind of requires uh there's different levels of cosmology right so there's Madoka, who's been Jesus into the um, into this little universe. Um, there's Homura. Those are kind of like the top level. But then there's also the people that Homura has resurrected, and that's Mami and Kyoko. Um, but there's also the people who have been allowed in, which includes Sayaka and Bebe. And those two are there for one specific purpose for Madoka, which is to kind of reconnect Madoka's corporeal form with her eternal form. But they're also there for a specific reason for Homura, because they're both keeping one of the other magical girls occupied. Uh, uh, Sayaka is keeping Kyoko occupied and Bebe is keeping Mame occupied while this whole theater experience runs its course. Mm. And so wait, so why are the why are the other ones like resurrected or like, oh, like that's I, just part of the witch 
world creation? I think they're resurrected so that Homura can have the fantasy she always wanted. Mm. But there's that difference between, because like Sayaka and Bebe are not resurrected, like within the universe. They come from outside of it. And that's why they know things that they're not supposed to. Yeah. And they're both these, this unique position. They're angels, right? Madoka is a god. They are angels sent from Madoka. And they act as this, not exactly a mirror, but this like reference point for Homura because Homura should be an angel too, right? But instead she never died, never became the witch that, you know, becomes part of Madoka. And so she is in this completely unique position where she's someone who knows about Madoka, remembers her, but is cut off from her in a way that the angels, Sayaka and Bebe, are not cut off from her. Hmm. What if she's the angel of death? Yeah, I mean, I think she's I think she's very much like Lucifer and the devil. Um, What what do you mean by the angel of death specifically? I don't know. It was something you said earlier and I really liked it. Oh, the (laughs) avenging angel. Yeah. Like still back on your great point earlier. (laughs) (laughs) I liked it. Um, Well, in the world before this movie that Homura is inhabiting with the wraiths, she is very much the specter of death for any wraith she comes across. She is the efficient killing machine. In fact, it's unclear at the end of the series if there are any other magical girls anymore or if it's just Homura who goes out and murders witches because she's so powerful that maybe no other magical girls are birthed. Mm. Because also magical girls are birthed from the the wish that they make with a Kyubei and it looks like Kyubei is not in that position to grant wishes anymore. Kyubei is relegated to a companion for Homura. Oh, Kyubei is like demoted to a Bebe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. So Bebe speaks some other language that gets translated as subtitles, right? But when I was listening to it, she kept saying things like Camembert. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> did it sound like anyone to anyone else that she kept saying Kyubei? Well, when she's getting strangled, she keeps saying Kyubei. Kyubei, Kyubebe. And and that's when Homer is uh, like, why are you doing this? And it's trying to say like, no, Kyubei is doing this. Listen to me. It's interesting how Kyubei, Bebe, I didn't even think about that. Mm. Uh, okay. <laughs> but, now that I'm, but now that I'm hearing you say it, I'm like, ah. Oh. Yeah. And, and they're both the same kind of position, right? Bebe is kind of mommy's companion. Yeah. Um, he is mommy's Kyubei. And Kube. actually, in a weird way, because Bebe is subservient to Mame in a way, it's being cared for like a baby, but is actually far more in the know than Mame is, because it's an angel from outside of this little universe. In the same way that Kyubei should be relegated to Homura, but Kyubei knows a lot more about the inner workings of the universe than Homura does. Knows how to set up an isolation field and all that bullshit. Anyway, so there's there's a lot of awesome wordplay going on here and a lot of awesome uh, uh, mirroring going on here. So let's check back in with people. What what did everybody think of Kyoko in this movie? Oh, I was going to direct us towards Sayaka. Oh, please. Let's go there then. Sayaka's alive. <laughs> um, and she's kind of like large and in charge mm-hmm. and like leading an interrogation and shit. She knows um, more than pretty much anybody in this movie, which yeah. is not the position she was in in the series. Right. So I didn't know what to make of that. I felt like, is this a different Sayaka? 
I think it's a Sayaka after that scene with Madoka at the end of the right. series. Right, it's a resurrected. Yeah, she becomes a new kind of being. She's like yeah. an angel. She's in the guise of a magical girl, but we saw she has access to her witch form whenever she needs it. She's like an unbridled spirit. Right, and, we, and we, yeah, we see that in the movie. We see her kind of releasing her witch form. Oh, yeah. it looks so good. Like, like, <laughs> like a total badass. I like Sayaka a lot more than a lot of people. And so I enjoy getting to see her knowing what she's doing and not being the kind of fool rushing in. Mm. Um, I just, I enjoy getting to see that. But so. they gave us that little nugget, like she's over Kyosuke. Yeah. I thought that was pretty gratifying. Yes. Yeah. No, agree. Absolutely agree. And do you think that's because she's experienced Madoka's presence, the divine love, or do you think it's separate from that? Yeah, because no. that was real love, right? Like what Sayaka feels for Madoka was, I don't know, like with Kyosuke, it's a crush. Yeah. Like they don't communicate. They're I don't, not real. I don't know that it, it doesn't necessarily even have to have been Madoka's doing that she's over him. I mean, we just, we get yeah. over crushes. Like yeah. it's the thing that happens. He's kind of incidental in a lot of ways. And the fact that she gave up her wish for him in the series, you know, she is giving up her life for what really is very incidental. And so I enjoy getting to see him be incidental. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to suggest that Madoka did something to like free Sayaka. I just meant like, you know, once you experience something genuine, like trivial things, they're easier to discard. Mm. I, I was gonna say, she, in some ways too, she had a more genuine thing with Kyoko who like actually Aha. saw her for who she was <laughs> and like, yeah, they actually like interacted, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. I didn't think about that because she gets the kind of closure scene with Madoka where she watches Hitomi and Kyosuke on stage. But you're right, like she experiences that compassion from Kyoko in the death scene. Okay, so, so Sayaka is different. And we, I really liked her scene with when Homura, right after Homura, I think uh, accuses Bebe, that's when her and Sayaka have a scene. And it's like the reverse of the Homura, mm. Sayaka, Kyoko scene when yes. Kyoko first fights Sayaka. You know, uh, Homura was the epitome of precision and had the upper hand during that. And then we see now Sayaka puts the tip of her blade just in the gears of yeah. Homura's time device. Like that was fantastic. Doesn't even hurt anything, just stops it from moving. And so like that dynamic has flipped in that scene, which was really cool. Yeah, that was wild. I love I love her kind of the way in which she tells Homura to like, you know, oh, you're just going to run away again. Like you're just going to do that same running away thing you always do. Um, and there is something to be said for Homura's kind of ultimate weakness being that she has the ability to run away oh. and to redo. And therefore she doesn't have to put up a fight, right? She can always just go back and try again. Yeah. And in the previous scene where she fights mommy, mommy does the same thing. Mommy attaches a line to her and that's what stops her from running away. Because I guess when you're touching Homura, you stop time with her. Yeah. And it was the same thing. She was like, you're always running away. Like, you're mm. not going to run away this time. You have to deal with me. And if that's going to be a fight, so be it. But like, you can't keep doing this. And that 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 definitely connects to the thing of Homura as a fan of magical girl shows, because 
you always, if you get to the end of a show and you don't like the emotional revelation that's there, you always have the option of going, I don't want to process that now. I'm just going to go watch the show again or watch a different show, go from the beginning again. And they're saying like, maybe that's not the healthiest thing to do. Maybe when you get to that emotional revelation, you should sit with it, especially if it's uncomfortable. One of, to me, I think the most interesting things in the whole movie is the imagery of um, of the the chick being unable to break out of his egg, right? Being born with mm. dying mm. there. And which is where I, again, have to go to Utena because that's just who I am. I am so sorry. <laughs> but like, well, it happens that there there's a quotation and it's from it's from a German a German book by um oh Herman Hess, I believe is his name, except I might be mispronouncing it because I don't know German. <laughs> uh, but it's quoted in a repeated cell sequence in Utena. So it gets repeated in many Utena episodes mm-hmm. about the chick who can't break out of his out of his shell like will die in the egg, right? And we are the chick. The egg is the world. Mm-hmm. And we have to kind of break out of our world. And in Utena, that's about trying to break out of the shell and revolutionize the world. And I, it, to me, it seemed a very clear callback to hmm. that Utena um, when they talk about it in the movie here. But also just on its own, I find it to be such an interesting idea that you can be born within your own little shell. You can live in your own little isolated world but that's not really life. If you can't break beyond that isolation, if you can't break beyond what you, the safety of what that what you've created for yourself, like what does it even matter? And, and Homura is unable to learn that lesson, right? At the end of the movie, we see the entire world getting covered over in her kind of domain, her zone. Um, she is extending her egg rather than breaking out of it. Yeah, why get out of your egg when you can just make your egg bigger? <laughs> um, and so I, I, I'm... Very, I'm fascinated by the idea of Homura as someone who refuses to learn that lesson. And and so that world she creates at the end, she says something like she isn't actually changing the universe. She's just stealing this one part of Madoka Mm -hmm. and bringing that with her into like her own, like she's creating another sort of like pocket universe. Yeah, I think so. But yeah, she definitely refuses to let go of Madoka. Um, and and won't even create a facsimile of her in her own universe. She insists on having that piece of Madoka with her. Because we definitely, we watch her influence spread over like the globe um, towards the very, very end of the movie. Mm -hmm. So, which implies to me that perhaps she's not being entirely truthful when she says she's just going to take a piece of it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because she says that, but then she rewrites the entire universe seemingly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I, I don't know. I don't necessarily take her at her word. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So I guess we had Madoka rewrite the universe to become this sort of spiritual Madoka. And then she rewrites the universe and becomes this sort of like Lucifer figure. Like that's the that's the change. Yeah, I think so. Like, I don't know what other than that is what she like. I I think she's just in charge of the world now because she expands her egg to, you know, over the entire globe. Which again, kind of, I think just speaks to that whole demiurge thing Yeah, that she becomes the god of this microcosmic world, you know, is very large to us, but in terms of like a cosmology is very small and convinces everyone inside of it and maybe even herself that she's the creator god. Okay, so does patriarchy and capitalism exist in Homer's new world? I guess we'll have to wait till the fourth movie, won't we? Oh! <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we, we have frazzled Cube. 
he's still there, but he might be there mostly to, you know, kick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and she has some line about that too, right? Where she's like, you'll be there because I have use for you or something like that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, which disappointed me, which like I'm I'm really looking forward to if the fourth movie ever comes out to see where Urobushi is that the the writer where he, uh, where he takes it, because to me, if I was recreating the universe and I like Homer a lot, so I might make some of the bad decisions she's made. There's no way I would keep the Cubay around. So what would you kick when you're bored on a Sunday? Like, come on. Uh, <laughs> myself, I guess. I, I don't know. It's uh, when we're at the like edge of the universe it's always just like i guess uh humura and kube are the people that we see and i guess sort of madoka a little bit too but you know like when she's recreating the universe it's that like psychedelic sea of cubes what, what do you guys think about all the blimps yeah the blimps was great like i loved the just this ever-present eye in the sky awful thing watching us but i I couldn't like decode any actually symbolism. It was just their ever presence uh, that was disconcerting to me. Yeah, the blimps are the chairs of the movie. <laughs> Ooh, and okay. there's the part where they get faces when they're like crashing yeah. into the ground. They're a little <laughs> bit like baby-like. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, zeppelins are like a German thing, right? Oh yeah, and it, one of them crashing is very reminiscent of the Hindenburg. But we also got a Titanic sinking image in this movie, didn't we? Yeah. There's all these like major disasters that we're we're looking at for some reason. The blimps. Mm. It's funny. I it happens. I just rewatched. Um, what do you call it in English? Uh, Kiki's Delivery Service. Oh yeah. Which also has like a big blimp like disaster as like its climax. Uh huh. Just thinking about kind of. The ways that that plays into kind of ideas of great disasters. I think most of us have never seen a blimp go down, and yet, yeah, gosh, I'm I'm just uh, I've been sort of rewatching silently as we've been talking, and at uh, hour six minutes, she's uh, Humura and Madoka are like talking, and she's like trying to figure out what's going on, and she's like. How could we meet again? Like, you know, you seem like you're like a copy, but you're like the real one. And as she's talking about this, like her being a copy, her hair unfurls and then forms up into this like wing like shape, sort of, I guess, like foreshadowing when she's going to get these like black wings later on. And I sort of feel like maybe that's like the moment that she came up with this idea of like that she can somehow create this copy or or steal away Madoka. Well, because there's also something of, you know, the the original Homura, right, is the one with the the braids, um, whom we've gone mm. back to at the beginning of this story. She clearly in her created universe wishes to be the girl she was before she went through her many, many kind of do-overs of the series. Um, in which she became more jaded and, you know, stopped wearing the glasses, stopped wearing the braids. Gotcha. That were so, th- so that might be then furling might be the when she's losing the braids. That's what I think. But uh, but but I might. I'm but I'm also to... not looking at it to know if I'm I might be thinking of a different part because there's definitely a part where her hair is being unbraided. And I might just be thinking of a different part than you are. Yeah. Well, it's she's talking to Madoka and she's losing the fantasy. Right. Because that's when she's trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And so she's happy because here she is with Madoka, but it's not exactly what she wanted. And the ending of the movie 
is very similar to the beginning of the movie, right? It's Homura getting introduced to Madoka again. It's that scene that we've seen, I don't know how many times at this point, of Homura coming into the classroom for the first time. Except it's it's Madoka. Oh, okay. It gets switched. That's So that's the ultimate iteration that Homura wants is like, What do I want to do more than anything? I want to be with Madoka. Well, what do I actually want more than anything? Maybe she wants to be Madoka. Mm. Interesting, because she does. She she's wearing Madoka's hair ties at the in that scene, and it's it's a very kind of that ultimate moment. She's like, you know what? Actually, they're they're better on you. Right, Um, and she actually uses that because the the ribbon, the red ribbon, represents a miracle, right? And she uses them as a way to keep Madoka here because Madoka has that moment of deja vu and is like, hey, maybe I'm God. Is that something you remember? <laughs> and Homer is like, no, 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 no. You're not God. You wear these ribbons. You stay here with me. So like this thing that was a reminder to Homura, this ribbon, this miracle becomes a chain for Madoka. Well, and, and that's the sort of thing that makes me think that maybe she has actually split off this little piece of Madoka, right? Because like Madoka is still aware of her divinity or something, right? Like it's like almost like she re- reconnects in the cosmic Madoka and then Humura like stops her. Though I guess we just have seen this thing of certain aspects of these memories retaining when the universe resets, right? So maybe mm-hmm. that's just Madoka having her experience similar to what Humura had after after the last big reset. Mm-hmm. We, I mean, we go if I go back all the way to the very beginning of the series, which so much of the you know early part of the movie is clearly mimicking, mm-hmm. right? It's kind of a replay of the beginning of the series, but a little different. But I think about the fact that, you know, that first episode is called Like I Saw Her in a Dream, right? And it's all about kind of having this moment of feeling like there's there's something, like I already know her. I know her from somewhere else. And I feel like we kind of get a glimpse of Madoka having that same sort of feeling at the end of the movie here without it having been necessarily a dream. Okay, so again, a a return to the beginning of the series. It's not the same dream that she has known Homer through, but again, it's like... It's something she can't quite connect to, but there's definitely something there. Because every time Homura repeats herself, like something's a little different, right? There's no point in redoing it exactly the same way each mm-hmm. time. Um, so I feel like we are having just yet another iteration um, that's a little different. God, I love this anime so much. It's really good. Yeah, it's real good. Ben, do you, you were a little uh, on the fence when we first started uh, about the movie. How do you feel about it now? I mean... You know, it's one of those things that I think is very interesting when you sort of analyze it. My experience of just like watching it through, I just thought the pacing was kind of weird and they're like, it was trying to do too many things. Great Gatsby. It's more interesting when you stop to analyze it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the series was so good just because I thought the climax of the series, like the kind of sci-fi concept was super interesting and then also like just like emotionally it was like super interesting and mm. just for some reason i'd like just yeah like the emotional like i didn't i didn't like feel humorous pain or something in the way that i did watching the series to like sort of justify why she's doing the things she did i don't know yeah. we, I mean, we did have like six hours for the series so. <laughs> uh, also, there's something to be said for it's harder to feel feel for a god 
Mm. Right. Homura was was a human in the series. And so I think it's a lot easier to connect to her pain and suffering. And when her pain and suffering is in a lot of ways brought on by her own desires and by her own actions as a god who can do whatever the heck she wants, it's a little harder. I think it keeps us uh, one step removed from Mm -hmm. her. And it's a nice uh, division point between the world that's set up at the beginning of this movie and the world that is set up at the end of the movie. In both of them, uh, Homura is the defining fact. She She's the one in charge, in power. But in one of them, it wasn't her choice to make it that way. And in the second one, the last one, it is her choice to make mm. it that way. It's like Kyubei gave her an idea and she's like, oh, well, yeah, what if I was God? That would be pretty cool, right? So again, there's power and agency, mm-hmm. but when you use your agency unwisely, perhaps we don't feel for you quite the way that we once did. Yeah, um, And that tension, I think, is so much of what makes it a, a fascinating piece of art. Well, yeah, because what is there t- for Homura to struggle against anymore? Like, in, in what way can we still find Homura compelling? I never thought that she became a god and that's, that's what makes me feel different about her at the end of it. But that's true. I can't relate to her the same way that I related to Homer the human or even Homer the magical girl. Even Homer the witch. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I do like that she has become this perfect, not necessarily mirror, but counterpoint for Madoka because she has experienced the same modes of being that Madoka has. And this is the final transformation for her to be the counterpoint to Madoka because she couldn't be counterpoint to Madoka the god Mm. as Homura the mortal, but now she can be. It's a very yin and yang kind of thing. Ooh, and in yin and yang, there's always, there's the little dot in each of them, right? So Homura has taken that little dot of Madoka and has contained her inside of her own. (laughs) Now that makes me wonder if, in Madoka's world, <laughs> is there a little piece of Homura that she has pinched off to keep her company? Mm. Like at the end of the series, Madoka decides to become a god and it changes her relationship with everyone. It erases a lot of it. But there's this question at the end of the series for me is like, is Madoka still lonely? Because um, throughout the series, in mm. some ways, she's lonely. But when she becomes a god, is she still lonely? Oh, I have to think she's very lonely. Well, in this, I thought she wasn't because she has beings like Sayaka and Bebe, you know, angels that are in contact with her, that get to experience her full presence, her glory. But now that I'm thinking about her with Homer as the counterpoint, how could she not still be lonely? Because she doesn't have someone who is on the same level, you know, because that's part of having like a good partnership is not just that you like each other, but that you can consent to things, that you are of proportional you know, power in the relationship so that you can agree on things fully. Yeah, I mean, the, the post-credit scene didn't really paint Homura as being in a, like a happy place. I think they're both pretty darn lonely. I have a hard time imagining being a god as being anything but lonely. Wow. And I feel much more for Madoka as a god than for Homura because it was that selfless love that drove her to make the choice that she did. She took her kind of divinity upon herself in order to save others. Um, And there's a certain amount of hubris in that. Mm -hmm. Um, But nonetheless, I find that not more relatable because like, I wouldn't do that. That's not relatable to me. (laughs) 
Um, but I find it more sympathetic than Homura. Mm-hmm. I find Homura more relatable, but I find Madoka more sympathetic. And I think that, <laughs> and I think that is the crux of what I like about the show. <laughs> Hell yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I think I would make the Homura choices. I think I would be selfish. And I, I don't like that about myself, but I think, you know, like if I was given the opportunity to become a god, I think I would pinch off a piece of my partner because I love her so much and couldn't be without her. Um, and that would be a very selfish thing for me, but I think I would follow Homer's path. I'd probably pinch off a piece of Kim Petras just because she's so awesome. Yeah? Who's Kim Petras? She's a trans artist who, I think she's like the first performing artist first trans performing artist to win a was it grammy emmy i can't remember the music awards grammy grammys okay what about you ben well i was just you know i have a duty to bring things back to evangelion once an episode (laughs) and uh so uh gendo has his lost love that he like wants to recreate and Uh uh you know clones creates ray and wants to now I'm getting confused, but he wants to like subvert instrumentality to be in charge of it. <laughs> yeah, he wants to do like a perverted version of instrumentality, like Gendo mentality. It's Gendo. Yeah, either he'll be back with her within instrumentality or he will be God so he can create or destroy whatever he wants and he can have his Yui back. Well, he's definitely the homo of that series. <laughs> oh no! Homer Endo, this is world shattering. Did, did you just realize through the transitive property, Alex, that you're Gendo? Oh no! <laughs> My worst fears come back to truth. I'm the patriarchy I was fighting all along. <laughs> Okay, well, I need to examine that dynamic within myself because that's a very disturbing revelation. Uh, okay, yeah, you're right. Homura does map on to Gendo. And obviously, we spend much more time with Homura. We see her pain and her experience. And so she's much more relatable than Gendo. Um, but if we had, you know, a Gendo rebellion movie where we got it all through his lens, who knows how we would feel? Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to think I'd still hate him, but... I might not. Yeah. Well, I mean, that goes to this feeling that I have of if you knew anyone's full life story, you might not like them, but you would understand. You'd be like, oh, well, yeah, of course, that's where you got to. I hate that you got there, but uh, I think we're all the same when it comes down to it, our consciousnesses. So like if my consciousness was in your body, I'd end up in the same place. So we're we're doing great. We've discussed a lot of cool things here. We're not quite at our time, but are there any points of interest or questions that anybody wanted to ask or, or put forward to the group? I want to talk about the transformation sequences. Please. Yeah. Because they're they're so extended compared to what we got in the series. And I love I love me a good transformation sequence Mm -hmm. and i just i I think they're i think they're stunning to watch but i'm i'm fascinated to hear what you guys think about you know each one of them is clearly a different style of dance and has a lot of her own personality in it and what you guys kind of took away from the differences among the transformation sequences because i I thought they were probably endlessly analyzable um but i'd love to hear what you guys thought of them 
I might need a recap because I remember was it Sayaka that she had like the break like, dancing and then yeah. she breaks through herself, which is such a beautiful image. Yeah, that was a visceral image. Is she the one that has the the segment that looks like figure skating? Mm, I don't think so. Who is that? So the in the series, the transformations kind of just felt like shorthand. And then when they were super meaningful- Ah, the ice we, skating's mommy. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, mommy's so, she's dancing, she's ice skating, she's twisting. Okay. Uh, and it makes her transformation, she looks very much like the paper dolls we've seen dancing throughout the beginning. Right. I love the way they all they all rip through themselves. Mm. And in different ways, Homura's is this desperate grab because has you know a lot of just kind of like the the fool runs in energy that she has in the series. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I that's kind of one thing that they all seem to have echoed throughout, even though they're all dancing very differently. Mm-hmm. Oh god, I love the multi-arm effect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is so Sailor Moon. Oh wow! It took me a moment to like put my finger on what the dancing of of Madoka herself reminded me of. But what it actually reminds me of is a lot of the dancing that was like very popular in like opening and ending theme songs for anime in like the mid 2000s. I'm thinking of stuff like like Haruhi Suzumiya was like the big first one, but stuff like Lucky Star. Her dancing looks mm. a lot like the Lucky Star dancing. Mm. So it feels like it's hearkening back to a certain kind of girls just having fun kind of sense. Mm. Sayaka does those poses at the end. So like flash dance or something. Homer's is very kind of short, and Homer's is almost like someone who doesn't know how to dance dancing. But hers is also balletic. Mm. I think. Yeah, Homer is very like vogue. Yeah, okay. It's this part where Madoka's like has her hand on her hip and she's like swapping her hands about and stuff. I, I don't know dance terminology, but always it makes me think of like those kinds of dance sequences that were very popular in the the mid-aughts for um, anime. And everyone, you know, all the fans would learn them. And that was part of why they started putting them in so many series. And there's a a naivete about it and also a sense of just fun. Oh, and the final pose. Final pose for them all. Yeah, so that's something we didn't get in the series was the, like, all of them together. It is Super Sentai. We get the same thing when they stop Hitomi's nightmare. We get a similar thing where maybe someone else can elucidate this for me. I was totally lost. They sit around this table where Bebe is going to morph into her witch form and eat a cake. And they play. I grew up with something that was similar. That was like, who stole the cookies from the cookie jar? Not me. Couldn't be. Then who? And you kind of keep naming someone. You kind of go around the classroom or whatever. So like, what was that? First of all, they take a long time with it. And mm-hmm. I didn't know if it was just like supposed to be this cute jokey thing or if there was some sort of significance to it. Well, it, it's both. I mean, both. It, it's it's young and sweet. And if this is what Homura desired was a chance to kind of be a magical girl, but in a fun, happy way. Mm. Like it makes sense that we're going to play those like those classroom mm-hmm. games. Mm-hmm. There also is something to be said for a lot of the imagery they evoke within the song. They talk about like, I think mommy is described as being like cheese. And Mm -hmm. we know that, of course, baby likes to eat cheese. Mm -hmm. So that goes back to her eating mommy's head in the series. Oh, wow. Um, There are a number of kinds of things, I think, kind of embedded in. But I also think some of it's just nonsense a little bit. And Homura, Uh Homura particularly doesn't quite know what she's doing, right? She, it's, she's still learning the game that she 
wanted, which I don't know, says to me that it was a game she always wanted to play and maybe never got to. So, mm. so she put it in her world without actually knowing how to play it. So the people she imagines hanging out with can play it, but she still never learned. I love that. I happen to love that scene. I know it's kind of long and nonsensical, but I, I think it's a lot of fun. Well, there's one yeah, I liked it. that's super interesting to me in that this world that she's created is kinder to the magical girls, but it's also kinder to the witch animal. Mm. We don't have witches. We have nightmares. Yes. And not only does the nightmare, uh, it's fed this meal before Bebe eats it, right? But then it actually doesn't die either. You know, it just looks like Hitomi's head. It transforms it back into a benevolent form of itself, which it then is presumably returned to Hitomi to keep being her dream, her fantasy, her want. And so it's very kind to the antagonist that she creates in it. That's a really good point, especially because we know that, of course, you know, Homura subconsciously somewhere must know that she's a wit. Ah. So she has therefore been kinder to herself. Ah, it's also interesting you point out about the the terminology difference and the use of the word nightmare, which I always think about like the original roots of that word being like a, a, a goblin or a witch who like rides you in your sleep. Mm. Right? Oh, wow. Really? That yes. Sense. And that imagery, I think, ties in really beautifully with this series. Yeah, that's awesome. And I liked the nightmare, wraith and witch. It had that great effect of being like, wait, which Magical Girl series am I in? (laughs) Right? Because like every Magical Girl series, there's going to be not even just Magical Girls. Like that's just a really common thing in uh, uh, fantasy in general. Yeah, exactly. Doesn't even have to be anime. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Whether, you know, whether they're evil wizards or orcs or whatever, every story has its own individualized uh, antagonist, symbolic antagonist. What are you thinking about, Ben? Well, I was Googling and I was trying to look up the cake thing, if there's some explanation. Did not find it. But one of the other frequently asked questions is uh, the chairs. Mm. And <laughs> Back on you the guys chairs. are the ones. <laughs> so some people think it's an homage to this manga, Bokurano. Oh, Bokurano. Oh, okay. Hmm. So that has some like explicit things with chairs and like, something and so anyway there's just like panels of the manga and then they have you know shots of the empty chairs from madoka but uh i'm a little little skeptical or i'm not convinced by this side by side i've seen that anime and i i could be convinced but i also it feels like a stretch Okay. But I'm also happy to make stretches when they're fun. Well, so chairs, like, what does the chair represent? Like, to me, it speaks like a chair is a place for someone, right? They're not necessarily a direct allegory or anything, but they are a way to reinforce this theme of loneliness throughout the series is there's always empty chairs. There's always, no matter how perfect your life is going to be, there's always going to be someone you wish was there, right? There's, you're never going to have everyone in your life in the same place at the same time. It's an interesting contrast to the idea of like musical chairs where there's always one chair too few. Ah, right? yes. Um, and there are so many, you know, I think mostly like contemporary set, like non-fantasy anime that kind of play with that idea. Hmm. Um, I immediately think of like the shoujo classic uh, Fruits Basket. Um, which gets its title from a game about like calling people out and calling them over based on like what fruit they are or whatever. And the main character never kind of getting called because she's like the weird one out. I, I, yeah, I think about 
musical chairs and how it's always it's a race to be sure that you can get a chair because not everyone will and how this is a world where it's too many chairs where we have mm. not as many people as we would hope i don't i i, I had a thought it escaped me <laughs> as thoughts do but yeah. <laughs> mm, i have a more sinister perspective because like I was thinking about there was a scene in Madoka's bedroom in the series where there was a bunch of chairs, mm. which is very unusual. It's her bedroom. And just like it felt like invisible spectators. And it felt again like this misogyny theme of just like the male gaze is always on young women. And sometimes it's like anonymous or something just out in public, like just feeling like you're being watched. But unidentified people or it could also be this like I don't know how to put it exactly you know me personally like struggling with like beauty standards and body shaming I feel like there's always this invisible tribunal that's judging me but that might be putting a little bit too much of myself into this story I mean okay so let's say there's an invisible spectator and the the chairs represent that they represent a place for that invisible spectator well who's the invisible spectator it's us right the audience is the invisible spectator. So it could also be a symbol to be like making a place for the audience, which would reinforce the Homura as a fan of magical girls theme, because like there's a place for her there. She's taking a direct role in the story. There's also a place for us to take a role in this story, like to examine our own. And like you said, we've talked about this before. Blixa, you're very good. At, and Ben, I think too, we're good at uh, talking about the fan service in the series as a uh, an invitation for us to examine our own mm. interests and our own, like what role we are playing in consuming this media. Yeah, I guess I'm just stuck on like the context of it being in her bedroom. It feels like such an intrusive thing, hmm. like a violation. Well, that um, also kind of, and this this may be out of left field, but that also kind of, to me, spoke of like uh, a, a hint that this wasn't the first revolution because in previous revolutions, the other magical girls might have come over to her room and now there's no, no reason for them to be there. But for some reason, the chairs are still there. Mm-hmm. Ben? I don't know. Any thoughts on chairs? I think we... <laughs> <laughs> I think it's an unsolvable riddle. It was like Ikea chairs, which are like notoriously hard to assemble, like <laughs> little girls trying to assemble their identity. Mm, mm, that's deep. <laughs> we can cut that. I love it. Sorry, I'm still just here, like singing empty chairs and empty tables <laughs> in my head, like <laughs> just on a loop. So so I thought I thought there was someone who when we were talking about it. Or no, maybe we're they were talking about how like Evangelion is done done. I mean, do we think that they're gonna keep doing uh Madoka movies forever? Madoka spin-offs? Is this a is this a forever series? Suspect not. If if I were to hazard a guess, I think they would make number four and then there would be nothing else, just like Evangelion. So it feels like a forever series until the final installment comes out, and then you're like, oh. It's actually been 10 years since they made one, so I guess they're not making anymore. Has, well, has anybody watched, because I, I haven't, um, those, it's, I don't know if you'd call it a spin-off series or an alt-universe or whatever. Um, what's it called? Oh, Magia. side stories? Yeah, like Magia Recorda or something. It's mm-hmm. There's two seasons on High Dive. I haven't gotten around to them yet. I did poke around, and like the animation styles, it's different. Uh, so 
in that regard, it doesn't really feel like the same universe to me anyway. Because yeah. I feel like Madoka has such a specific style. I don't mm. know a lot about it, but it feels like a way of kind of branching off using kind of the, uh, the the name recognition power of Madoka without actually making more Madoka, which is, you know, a way to cash in without actually kind of harming your story by forcing it to continue when it doesn't want to. Yeah. But I, but I don't know because I haven't watched it. Yeah, I guess I'd be curious what creators of the show were involved in the side series. Because I imagine the writer is not the same. Uh, what was it called? I, I want to say it's called like uh, Magia Recorda. Or, yeah, hmm. maybe Magia Record. Oh, Record. Okay. I just decided it needed an A for no good reason. Because <laughs> I think the Madoka characters are in it as like side characters, I think. But again, I'm talking out of my ass here. Hmm. It's also, it's a RPG that hmm. then maybe got adapted. Game, okay. manga, so- manga, anime series. Maybe we'll check it out. Yeah, I don't know anything about it. I'm generally not in favor of those kinds of things because... Like, mm. I don't know. And the spinoff's better than the original. Frasier's way better than Cheers. <laughs> yes, I, yeah. I'm not saying here because it doesn't sound like it is. <laughs> but. Yeah. Okay, so if uh, movie number four ever comes out, we're covering it, right? Yeah. We're, we're going to check that out? Okay. I hope you got, you got Marley's number, story. right? If Madoka is kind of, if her story's the series and Homura's story is this movie... I want mommy's story. <gasps> oh, that's what I want. I mean, that would be cool because I assume you don't get the story from Homer's perspective again, because that would be weird. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely like I feel like everything's been said for Madoka in the series mm-hmm. and everything was said for mm. Homura in this movie. So it would have to be focused on somebody Ooh. else. So then they have to do uh, they got to do three more movies. Ooh, uh, I'd do it. I'd watch them. <laughs> but I, I could sort of imagine that, though. It's like, yeah, so now there's this other magical girl who's just an incidental character in this new Homura's world, and she has to be the one to figure out what's going on and fix things, right? I like that. Yeah. Uh, I did watch the uh, the two movies, the recap movies, um, to refresh myself on the series, and very not different from the series. It's almost beat for beat identical. So, like, it's not bad that they exist because anybody who wants to re-experience the story, that's a slightly more compact way of doing it. Um, but it's not much shorter than just watching the episodes over. Slightly higher animation quality. Oh, that's true. They did redo some stuff, which was nice. Okay, well, now we are coming up on our time. Any any final thoughts? I really enjoyed this discussion. Well, we got Marley's recommendation last time, but is there a second recommendation? Oh, no. I mean, there are always recommendations for a Magical Girl series. Um, well, whatever. Whatever you love. Whatever I whatever I love. Yeah. Wait. Oh, wait, 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 wait. wait. What, what if we challenge Marley and ask for an anime movie recommendation? Well, if I can move away from the Magical Girl genre, then... There's a movie I love called uh, Hota Rubi no Mori E. <gasps> oh my gosh, I love that movie. Yes, okay, thank you, yes. I cry every freaking time. Oh, it's, it's a beautiful short movie, very yeah. simple. 
one of my other kind of um, pet passions is uh, yokai stories, stories of these kind of Japanese creatures where they're like kind of a cross between like what fairies and demons yeah. and, and ghosts as we think of them in our kind of Western mentality. Um, and those stories have a very special place in my heart, those kinds of creatures of Japanese folklore. And so what's, what's the what's the teaser or like what would you... How, how would you describe it, Blixa? Like in some ways it's like a coming of age story, you know, like this girl, she does summer vacations. Was it like her grandma's place? It's out in the rural area and there's like a forest spirit, presumably. But the thing is like you can't touch the spirit or else it, you know, dissipates. It moves on or something or is destroyed. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. You know, this girl grows up getting to know this one spirit and, uh, it's just kind of this beautiful story. Kind of as part of her, like, summers every year. Yeah, but it's also very Mononoaware. You know, potentially, like, these spirits live forever, but nothing's forever. Yeah, it's, mm. it reminds me a lot of, and it, I actually am now wondering if it's the same manga, Kaba, and I don't know. Mm. Um, but uh, it reminds me of the series Natsume Yujinsho, um, uh, Natsume's Book of Friends, which is a fantastic series. The seventh season was just announced. I'm so happy. Um, but is also very much about kind of human relationship with these yokai creatures, like learning kind of friendship and connection through these creatures who are not human when you can't necessarily relate to humans. Yeah. So I don't really recall the English translation exactly. Light of the- it's going to be like into the firefly forest, into the forest of firefly. Yeah. So I-, I have a bootleg on DVD. It's really hard to find. Is it? Yeah, it's not on Blu-ray, but I think my copy is called, like, By the Light of the Firefly Forest, which I don't think that's exactly accurate. Yeah, that's why I was, I, I figured it had an English title that was not quite a direct Maybe translation. Yeah. To the Forest of Firefly Lights. Not a great transliteration. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't really roll off the tongue. Yeah, I was really fortunate that I um I saw it when it first came out in theaters in Japan. And it was- <gasps> Oh my gosh, you saw it in the theater? Yeah. And the golly, it was, it's, it's so simple, but beautiful. It's not, you know, Ma- the Madoka movie is beautiful, but in this very kind of let's collage everything and throw it at the screen kind of way. And mm. I feel like this is a very simple beauty. Mm. So yeah, if you, want, if you want a movie recommendation, there you have yeah. it. I didn't realize it was one that was hard to find, unfortunately. Yeah. So I learned about it because there was this anime reviewer who I really liked and he gave it a bad review no. and his fan base raged on him. Like you totally didn't get the story. Oh, and he went back a year later and redid it. It's like, I don't know if I was just in a bad mood when I watched it. It's like, this what movie happens? is beautiful. <laughs> it's like, I, I owe the creators a sincere apology. Mm. Well, given that you liked it, Blixa, if you haven't seen Natsume Eugene show, which has many seasons, um, you will definitely enjoy that one. It's- okay, I'll put that on the short list. <laughs> will it make me cry? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love crying. I love crying. Awesome. Yeah, it's the best. Let's cry together, Ben. Okay. Uh- <laughs>
Wait, I, I noticed that, that you're inviting Ben to cry with you. Alex doesn't get to cry with you. No, Alex, uh, me and Alex, we cry all the time. <laughs> uh, one more thing I wanted to note before uh, we go was I really, really loved, it might have been my favorite part of the movie was uh, Homer's witch form when she finally transforms. Yes, we didn't talk mm. about that. It's gigantic. It's super yeah. cool. At one point, its head splits open and we get those the flowers that look, they symbolize death, yes. right? Um, we saw those in um, Paranoia Agent. And then specifically, she's going to be guillotined, which is the tool of the revolution. That's the tool of killing the tyrant, the the ruler. So it's very symbolically appropriate. I just really liked and, it. And her, the way her ribbons are like, you know, hands clawing, trying to like not. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, man. Yeah. I love that image. The the choreography was just amazing for this anime. Absolutely. And then, of course, we got Mommy firing an ice cream cannon, which, like, how many other shows can you say that about? Uh, uh, Blixa, you want to kick us off? Okay. Pen. Pen. Pals. That's perfect. No, it's that was one of our weirdest <laughs> sign-offs. Don't worry, I have I have a plan for that in my head already. It's gonna... oh, you do good because <laughs> I wouldn't want to sound stupid. <laughs> oh, golly. <laughs>